Turning in our Bibles this evening then to Genesis in the chapter 9. Genesis in the chapter 9. And once more we're taking our reading from the opening 17 verses of the chapter. So Genesis in the chapter 9, reading together from the verse 1 down through the end of the verse 17. Word of God says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things." But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I re may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is a token of the covenant, which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And so reads the word of the Lord. We're coming this evening then to consider the first of the covenants of the Bible. And here in this passage we see that God covenants with Noah. And you and I come to this covenant then tonight recognizing this to be the Noahic covenant. Now, as we seek to place it within its proper context, we are reminded in the Word of God of the obedience of this man of faith. God had pronounced judgment upon the entire world. He had pronounced judgment upon all mankind. But the Word of God records that Noah, however, found grace in the eyes of God. Because as Scripture records, he was a just man. He was a man who sought to honor God, who sought to obey God, and who sought to walk uprightly before God. 
despite the fact that he was living in a very wicked world. Noah truly was the exception. Can I say that as we come to the Word of God tonight and we are reminded of this truth, that I also remind you that God is looking for such men tonight. In an age of extreme wickedness and days when sin abounds on every hand, God is still seeking men and women, young people who will stand for Him and live lives of obedience to Him. And so as we consider the life of Noah, we see a principle first and foremost. And this principle can simply be described as being that which teaches us obedience is rewarded by God. Them that honor me, I will honor. And the direct result of Noah's obedience saw him given a divine promise. We see that in chapter 6 in the verse 14. For as God is pronouncing this judgment, he says unto Noah, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. And then come down into verse 18, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And so his obedience, the immediate result of his obedience, saw that he was given a divine promise. But he was not only given a divine promise, he knew divine protection. Read there in the verse 21 of the chapter 6. It tells us there, And take thy unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Also in chapter 8 in the verse 1, we are reminded of this provision, this divine provision that God makes for Noah. It tells us, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. And so obedience saw that God indeed granted to Noah a divine promise. He granted to Noah divine provision, but he also then enjoyed divine protection. For in, verse, in chapter 7 and the verse 1, the Lord says, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee I have seen righteous before me in this generation. And then also in the verse 23 of the same chapter, every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of heaven, they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And so obedience saw a divine promise. It saw divine provision. It allowed him to enjoy divine protection. But obedience also then saw Noah realize divine prosperity. That's given to us in chapter 8 in the verses 16 and 17. Go forth from the ark, Thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And so Noah's obedience received directly resulted in him receiving that divine promise, divine provision, divine protection, but then stepping out, he knew divine prosperity. That's where we see very clearly the evidence then of verse 1 in the chapter 9, God blessed Noah. 
As we began our thoughts and considerations in the Noahic Covenant last week, we remarked upon that which is recorded there at the end of chapter 8, the verses 20 to 22. How that after experiencing the great days of devastation of the flood, many dark nights, many dark days, many uncertain days, Noah stepped out into the new unknown. And yes, there was much for him to explore, and yes, there was much for him to readjust to, but we notice first and foremost that this man of faith stopped and worshipped. The reality of the new unknown was there before his eyes. I believe that as he stepped forth from this ark, that the world that was before him was a new, unrecognizable world. I say this not because it was a new creation, but rather because I believe that as he stepped forth from the ark, he viewed with his own eyes a new manifestation of the planet that God had created. You see, the trauma of the mighty floodwaters coming from beneath and coming down from above, they undoubtedly chiseled and pummeled and carved new geological features on this earth. They without doubt reformulated the topography beyond all recognition of what was before. In my humble opinion, the world that Noah stepped out of the ark and viewed is very close to the world that you and I know today. Because since that day, in my opinion, it has only been altered because of volcanic eruptions or localized tsunamis. But despite the fact that a new world was there to explore, new mountain ranges to discover, new water basins, new grazing plateaus, new lakes and bodies of water, and yes, even a day trip to the Giant's Causeway. Finn McCool and Finn Gall weren't around then. And so that trip was no doubt a safer trip than legend would have. But Noah stopped. Noah worshipped. Despite all that newness, Noah realized and identified the necessary thing to stop, to give thanks, and to worship. And that's a principle that's everlasting, is it not? Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part. Yes, Martha, you're cumbered about much serving, you're racing about fulfilling duty and obligation, but Mary, Mary's at my feet. She's worshiping, she's counting everything else of secondary importance of little significance, she's sitting quietly in my presence. Friend, can I say that in the busyness of life, and even, yes, in the constant demands of duty, don't neglect worship. Everything else becomes of secondary importance to Noah. And Noah stops Noah worships the God who protected him, the God who provided for him, the God who promised with him. 
Notice those words in verse 21, the Lord, that's God, Jehovah God, He smelled a sweet savor. The sacrifice was offered as the smoke of that sacrifice arose from the earth. God beheld. God smelled. And it was a sacrifice acceptable to Him. Now, this term is not at all to say that God has a nose or God has the same sense of smell that we share. Rather, this term that is found in the Word of God is what we call an anthropomorphism, simply a human characteristic attributed to the divine. God is a spirit, and thus He shares not the human frame that you and I inhabit. And so the usage of these anthropomorphic phrases in Scripture are not to confuse us, nor indeed are they to be used as any basis for heretical teaching, for God is not like man. But rather we find Him in Scripture. Why? Because God seeks to communicate truth to us in a more meaningful way. Whenever the Word of God describes His eye as being that which is upon us, it simply testifies to us of His omniscience. He sees and He knows. Whenever we read of His arm that saves, His hand that guides, it testifies to us of His omnipotence, the fact that He is the all-powerful one. And so as we come to consider this term as it's found for us here in Genesis chapter 8, the nose that smells a sweet savor is simply testifying to us of His acceptance of a propitiatory offering, an offering to make atonement, an offering to appease the wrath of God, an offering to reconcile man to God. And notice there how Noah at the end of verse 20 took of the clean fowl. He took of the clean beast. He took those animals which were clean. He took those birds which were clean. And he offered them up as a sacrifice unto God. Remember, sin was the reason that the flood came. Now sacrifice was offered to turn away God's wrath. And it did. For God said, I will not again. And that's a very important phrase to read there in the Word of God. For there begins our understanding of what it means to be a believer. You see, we can't mention this tonight without considering once more our once-for-all sacrifice. He who lived and who died to take away our sin. He who was a propitiatory sacrifice for you and for me, the one who made atonement the one who forever appeased the wrath of God. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians in the chapter 5 and says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and have given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Exactly the same terminology that's found here in Genesis chapter 8 and comparable then in Ephesians in the chapter 5. And so tonight we cannot dwell upon this. We cannot identify this. We cannot mention it without once more rejoicing in the fact that he who in his own body bare our sin upon the cross 
offered up his life as a ransom for us all, he who shed his own precious blood, and that sacrifice that he gave of his own life was well-pleasing unto God. It was a sweet-smelling savor in that blood as it was brought within the veil, as it was presented there in the mercy seat of heaven. It still speaks for you, and it still speaks for me. So tonight, dear brother and sister, we with confidence can rejoice in a God who says, He will not again. You see, no more sacrifice is required. No more judgment is due. No more blood must be shed and presented. It's done. It's finished. It's over. The price has been paid. The curse for us has been removed. Our future has been secured. I am free. Praise the Lord, free indeed. What a Savior. God looks at what he did on my behalf and said, I will not again. Welcome. You're a child of the King. We come to consider this covenant enough with the preliminaries and going to forever be giving you introductory material if we don't get down to the nitty-gritty of what's before us. And so we come to consider the substance of the covenant. We enter into the chapter 9. And we behold that which God covenants to do. So what exactly did humanity? The eight who came from off the ark are the only people alive. And Noah being the recognized head stands representative then of all mankind. So God says unto him there in verse 1, he says, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Go repopulate the earth, God says. And in doing so, I promise to you, to man, that the ability to have children, the ability to see family units grow, the ability to bring forth a seed that shall remain, that is what I promise to you. Now, we pause there to reflect on this. One of the reasons that I don't uh, see a covenant before the Doeg covenant in Scripture Remember, I'm not seeking to be dogmatic. If you do, that's perfectly within your right and entitlement to do so. But one of the reasons I don't see a covenant before this chapter is due to what God promises here in the, in the verse 1 of chapter 9. If you come back to the very beginning of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, I want you to read the verse 28. For many of those who do see a covenant, either the Adenic covenant or the Adamic covenant before the Noahic covenant, will point to Genesis 1 and the verse 28 as proof that God entered into a promise arrangement, a covenantal arrangement prior to uh, um, the days of Noah in that antediluvian period. But read there in the verse 28, God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, first and foremost, nowhere in this passage will you see God saying that he's entering into a covenant with Adam, with man. Rather, I believe that instead of seeing that legal framework 
instead of seeing a specific thing to which God obligates Himself, I see God stating His intentions, His desires for mankind in the days of Adam. And to me, that's what makes the Noahic covenant then different. Yes, it may be in points similar to the promises made to Adam, but the promises made to Noah are made within a wider context and placed within a binding agreement, a covenant, as God terms it Himself. And so we can see from a comparison of verse 28 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 9 that God's desires, God's intentions largely remain unchanged from the days of Adam right through now to the days of Noah. But I suggest to you that in chapter 9 we identify this. His obligations have changed. In Genesis chapter 1, I see no evidence that he's obligating himself in any way. In Genesis chapter 9, it's all within the legal framework of obligation. God is obligating himself to do that which he is speaking to Noah about. But another lesser reason that I do not see a covenant in Genesis chapter 1 is simply this. It's the exact wording. If you compare chapter 1 in the verse 28 to chapter 9 in the verse 1, you will notice that a phrase or a word is missing, subdue it. It's found there in verse 28 of chapter 1, but it's not found in Genesis in the chapter 9. God's intention, His state of intention for Adam is that He'll go forth, He'll be fruitful, He'll multiply, and He will subdue the earth. But now as He's coming to form this legally binding commitment with Noah, the phrase subdue is no longer a stated desire of God for man. Now you may say, well, what's the significance of this? Why is that the case? I suggest to you there's two important reasons. The first is, of course, the very reason the flood came. The flood itself was a sharp reminder that man had failed to fulfill that intention of God. The flood came because sin abounded. Man was not in control. Man fell in the garden. And, I, and that was, of course, after God's stated desire, stated intention in Genesis in the chapter 1. And when he fell in the garden, he began a catastrophic downward spiral where the very thoughts and the intents of his heart were only evil continually. Murder was evident. Cain slew Abel. Immorality was evident. The sons of God went in unto the daughters of men. Greed was evident. Pride was evident. And all the while, God's desire that man would subdue the earth remained unfulfilled. Why? Because man couldn't even control his own heart. He couldn't even master his own desires. Before you think to yourself what a weak character Adam was, what a weak character the people of the antediluvian world were, is there anyone amongst us who can say they can control the raging passions and lusts and desires within but for God? We cannot control ourselves. We are not masters of that inward bent to sin. And I believe then that we see evidence here 
Yes, in the flood, that man was not in control. Testimony to the fact that he was not in control. He could not subdue the earth. In the fall, man surrendered his authority to the serpent. The Bible describes Satan as being the prince of this world. We know from Scripture that Satan has authority over lands and kingdoms of this world, and one day he will present those lands and kingdoms to his superman, the Antichrist. But in the end, of course, Satan will be defeated. And a timely reminder to everyone who is actually in control will be given. God. And so if we do see a a covenant in Genesis chapter 1, then I suggest to you that one of the commitments of that covenant remains unfulfilled and could never be fulfilled. And what does that say about God if it's true? What does it say about the covenants that He enters into? No, for me, this is simply further proof that Genesis 1 is not a covenant. Rather, it's a stated desires, intents, and promises of God, all of which man turned his back on at the fall. But we hasten on then to verse 2, we see another provision, another commitment of the covenant. The fear of you, chapter 9, verse 2, the fear of you, the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. This is the provision. The fear of man was to be found in all animals. Now, this provision was necessary then to verse 3, the next provision. It tells us, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Prior to the flood, man was on a vegetarian diet. But now this was replaced by a balanced diet of meat, vegetables, and fruit. And that's why the, the, the provision or the commitment entered into in verse 2 was so essential. That fear of man that was to be placed in all animals and all beasts was necessary because they needed that natural instinct to run away. They needed to have that natural desire to flee whenever they saw you or me coming because they might end up in a dinner plate. And so God was placing that uh, fear within them. Why? So that their numbers would be preserved, so that there would be that continual supply for our needs, our comfortable needs, so that we wouldn't hunt excessively. Now, as an aside, I do believe that a balanced diet of all the food groups is indeed God's natural way of looking after our bodies. I don't profess to be a doctor, nor am I seeking to take on the role of a doctor. I'm not in any way seeking to criticize you if you have a specific diet, and especially if that's his for medical reasons. But I suggest to you that from this reading of Scripture and other passages as well, I believe that the balanced diet of meat, vegetables, and fruit is what God has designed to meet the needs of our bodies. And He desires for the needs of our bodies to be met in the most natural way possible. 
And so whenever we embark upon diets which remove or cut out food groups as ordained by God and replace them with provisions which are man-made alternatives, I believe that our bodies in some way will suffer. Now, that is an aside. You can take it or leave it. I'm just stating it there as it is. Just know that I like my steak. I like it well done. I'll take it with vegetables and potatoes, and I'll happily receive a hearty portion of fruit salad afterwards. I'm an omnivore, and I'm also available for dinner any night but Tuesday. (laughs) We come into verse 4, and we see a, a prohibition now is given in this covenant. It says, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. So a prohibition, thou shalt not consume of the blood. Blood is a symbol of life in Scripture. And I need not remind you that all life is precious to God. Can I say that as believers, we can't state that enough in this generation. All life is precious to God. And so blood was not to be wantonly consumed here like savages would like the heathen would in their rituals and in their ceremonies. And this is all a testimony, I believe, to just how precious life was to God and life remains to God. In verse 5 and 6, then, we see further provisions made within the covenant and we see the institution there of capital punishment. Cain had killed Abel. We know that from the chapters that are previous to chapter 9. And because this institution of, or this decree of capital punishment was not instituted at that point, then his life was not required of him. But going forward, God's design was that as murder was committed, then a life would be taken. And notice there that it was simply but the outcome, the inevitable outcome of murder. It wasn't ever designed to be a deterrent. It was but the stated outcome that God decreed as man would take another man's life. And then we come to verses 8 to 11. And for me, these contain the main substance of this covenant. These contain within them the main substance, the main commitments that God enters into with man and indeed with the earth at large. Now back up a little bit into chapter 8 and read there in the verse 21. The Lord smelled a sweet savor and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Verse 9, and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy earth. Now, notice in those verses that we read, both in chapter 8 and then here in chapter 9, we see the commitment of God to man. But we also see the commitment of God to the earth. 
God covenants here to see humanity preserved, to see the climate preserved, to see the planet preserved. Now, all of this runs contrary to the messages that you and I are daily bombarded with. Whether they be scientific reports, news reports, TV documentaries, social media campaigns, even government policy, they all are inherently anti-biblical when it comes to this matter. We're living in an overpopulated world, they tell us. Something needs to be done to curb the population boom. We're facing a climate emergency, they tell us, one which, if we're not careful, will result in the eradication of the seasons and the ability of the earth to provide for our many and varied needs. We're facing the extinction of this planet, they tell us. We are in code red. And unless we find another place to land upon in our galaxy, it's all over. But all of these messages, they all run contrary to what God covenants here to do. All of them. And I've yet to find a point in Scripture where God rescinds any of His commitments. I've yet to find a point in Scripture where He sets aside any of these commitments. You just won't find it. This covenant is actually described as being the everlasting covenant. And I believe it's termed that for a very specific reason, to combat the message we're facing day by day. So make no mistake about it. The Word of God here tells us humanity will be preserved. The climate will be preserved. The planet will be preserved. And you might ask, well, what about these climate events that we're witnessing? What about reports that we're running out of natural resources? What about the melting polar ice caps? Well, can I give you a two-dimensional answer? The first aspect is simply this. Nowhere in the Word of God are we given license to pillage or ravage this planet. Nowhere are we given permission to embark upon our explorations and discoveries that will make our lives more comfortable or make our surroundings more opulent. But that's exactly what's happened. Man's greed has taken over when it comes to many of the natural resources of this world. God has given us this beautiful planet and He's placed within it all of the natural resources that you and I need for life and for a comfortable life. But when the greed of man takes over and when year after year the earth is ravaged so man can get richer, then we shouldn't be surprised when there are real life consequences. To take you back to school, Newton's third law applies even here. If there's an action, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. It's just the law of physics. But a second point of view to combat all of those questions with is simply this, and it's equally important response in all of this. Many of the things that we are viewing and are termed climate catastrophes or climate emergencies are, in my view, birth pains of the tribulation. 
The reminders of the time of Jacob's trouble is drawing ever nigh. And according to my reading of Scripture, that time of the uh, seven-year period of tribulation, it will involve climate events. It will involve catastrophic natural occurrences which will eradicate large swathes of the population of mankind, will destroy large parts of this planet, and will provide the perfect reason as to why God has to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And so, believer, don't be discouraged today. And don't be fearful of all that the media would have us to consume. Don't listen to the prophets and the messengers of doom. And don't be disturbed by Greta's messages. If you listen to her singing, you might be disturbed. I don't know if you caught it, but there at the weekend in Stockholm, she began to sing. And that would disturb you, but... Don't let our messages disturb you. God is in control. His plan is being perfected right before our eyes. And so the substance of the covenant, number two then, the stipulations in the covenant. There are none. God obligates himself unconditionally to fulfill all of the promises he makes to mankind and indeed the world we live in. So number three, didn't take too long. I saw some of you look at alarm and I said point number two. That's how quick it was over. There are no obligations, there are no stipulations. Point number three, the sign of the covenant. Remember we said last week about there being sacrifice or signature covenants, and this is a signature covenant. This is a covenant made and entered into with a sign to uh, signify that, to remind us of that. We read of that in verses 12 through 17 of the chapter. It's all to do with the rainbow. Verse 13, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and the earth. And then in verse 15, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth, the rainbow. That's the sign of the covenant. It's not a symbol of pride. It's a reminder of grace. It's not an identity mark of a particular group of men or women here on earth. It's a signature of God in the sky simply saying, I will not again. Signed, God. That brings us to point number four. The solace from the covenant. For me, that's when I see the rainbow. For I always smile. And I always say to myself, God's not finished. In verse 14, we see the words of God there. It says, It will come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And this promise of God is guaranteed in the cloud. You and I know that when the clouds roll in, our way gets a little darker. 
We know that the storm is coming. We know that the wind and the rain are going to batter down. But there in the midst of the cloud, there in the midst of the storm, God sets an everlasting reminder that even in the storms and the struggles of life, His grace is present. His grace is evident. His grace is available to you and to me. And He hasn't finished yet. He's not finished with your life. He's not finished with mine. And He certainly isn't finished with this world. So tonight as we view the covenant that God enters into here with Noah and we see the sign of the covenant, it's a rainbow, and we come to take comfort from all that we find in the Word of God, we simply rehearse this refrain, God is not finished. He has great and many plans for each and every one of us. Yes, today your, your way may be dark. Yes, today the storm may be real. Yes, today it may be all cloud and rain. But God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't given up on our world. God has promised a future to all whose trust is in Him. No matter what you're facing in life, no matter what you're going through right now, he hasn't finished. A covenant of love in the rainbow above, God seeks to share with us all. Though the clouds may roll in and the outlook be grim, he reminds us he reigns over all. When dark is the day and rough is the way, On the God of the rainbow I call. His promises last. He will hold me fast as into the arms of the God of the rainbow I fall. The Noahic covenant. It reminds us that he has, he is, and he will because he's our covenant-keeping God. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. May God bless these things to our hearts afresh.